Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. My name is Ben, and I'm filling in for Bill again today. And I'm going to start off the show with something that might sound a little bit heavy. We are all going to die. And I know as human beings, we don't like to think about that. And God will take some of us home in, a, in an instant, and others uh, will be a, a bit maybe a, a prolonged uh, effort. And maybe you're going through that with somebody or yourself right now. And so we're so grateful that John Wenderlein is joining us today. He is a hospice chaplain, and he has this book called Remember Me, End of Life as Seen Through the Eyes of a Hospice Chaplain. And it is something that, that um, again, John, you know, not a lot of people talk about or not a lot of people want to think about until you absolutely have to, and it's something that you're forced to be thinking about or experiencing. So first of all, thank you for following God's calling on your life. Thank you for being so passionate about your mission and your ministry. And thank you for joining us this afternoon with uh, on Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Well, again, I want to thank every, I want to thank you gentlemen for letting me come. And whenever I get the opportunity to, to uh, spread the message that, you know, that we need to love and it's going to be, like you said, it's going to be something we all have to deal with. So I've just had a great passion for that for a lot of years. So what what got you into the hospice profession? What got you into the really, um, as some people call it, the 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 business of dying? <laughs> it's funny you say that, but that's you know that's uh, really the way it works. I tell you, I I was in seminary probably twenty plus years ago, and you know it was a time that uh, our president had called up the National Guard. I'm sure you remember they were being drafted into the service, and many of the men that were in my seminary classes were. You know, they were being called up and there was just a great, a great concern, you know, about uh, what they were having to deal with. And I remember back then reading, I was not currently a hospice or even knew anything about hospice. And I remember reading an article that said uh, for every thousand, fifteen hundred soldiers, there was only three or four chaplains, you know, statistically speaking. And I thought to myself as a, a man still in his late, late 30s said, you know, that how horrible that is that someone has come to the end of possible death and they don't have somebody just to, you know, I hate to use the word all the time, but love them up. So, you know, I went home that day, I remember, and I told my wife, I said, honey, I said, guess what? I'm going to join the military. Now, my father was a 20-year retired Navy chief. Uh, I never did serve, but I said, so again, I left the house with the attempt to join and I, I went to the Navy first, but you know, I was forty, going to be 41 years old. In fact, I got a sweet letter from the general of the Army mm-hmm. saying, you know, hey, if we ever need somebody, we're going to call on you. And mm-hmm. at that moment, I just knew that was something I needed to do, that everybody deserved to have somebody next to them at the time that they passed. So, John, tell me about this. Tell me about the hospice profession and what you do, because there might be people listening right now that that will face it at some point and have no idea what a hospice chaplain does and why it's so important? Well, first of all, the hospice program is defined by even our government as a process of having, of course, nurses and aides and 
social workers, but there's also a chaplain. And, you know, as a as a chaplain, if you define what chaplain means, even a military chaplain, it doesn't mean that you necessarily grab your Bible and walk towards and you prophesize. But what you do do is you take everybody, what I do is I take everybody where they're at. Um, I have over 100 patients that I see within 30 days. And what I do for them is I walk in and I, you know, simply talk, simply put, excuse me, is uh, I just love them up. You know, we, we'll talk about automobiles. We'll talk about classic movies and we'll talk about God. And, you know, once a person realizes that I'm just I'm just that guy and I'm there because I want to be there, uh, we have usually a great conversation. There's only been a few times in my career where people said, I don't want you here. Get out of here. Uh, but other than that, uh, it's a uh, it's a job that uh, few people do. Uh, it's a job that uh, has a lot of turnover, not so much as a hospice chaplain, but our nurses and stuff, because it's a, you know, palliative care is is taking away people's pain and it's, it's tough. And I have to deal with their spiritual pain very often. You talk more about their spiritual pain and what you experience. Um, people share with you as, as their life on this earth comes to an end. Well, you know, probably 95% of the time, uh, I think depending on how old you are or why it is, you will find that we start to reflect. Mm. I do it with my daughter because she's in her forties. I, you know, I, I start to reflect on my life. And what happens is when you sit across from a doctor who's determined that you have six months, because that's the qualifications for hospice, you know, your life starts to, I, I hate to say flash in front of you, but sadly enough, um, many people are haunted by those decisions they made in their earlier years that not, might not have been so, you know, so good. So uh, for the person on that side, you know, I tell people they're ready for the nurse to come in. They're ready for that person to help clean them up. And the social worker will come in and they will help them with their life and paperwork and filling those things out. But, you know, when the chaplain walks through the door, it becomes more real to them. They, they, they pause. So what I find is the most wonderful thing is, you know, the scripture talks about us. We are all living seasons. You know, I rem I'm always reminded of that song of the 60s, uh, mm -hmm. mid 60s turn, turn, turn. And it's, and it's in the, it's out of Ecclesiastes, the third chapter, you know, the first eight verses, it talks about the, there's a season to live and a season to die and a season to love and a season to cry. Um, and the Bible talks a lot about seasons. So um, I seldom meet, seldom meet people who are coming or have been diagnosed coming to the end of their life that don't go through a sorting out process, you know, a, a ringing out of those issues. And, you know, I'm blessed to get the opportunity to come alongside them and just uh, help them sort through them, give them some reassurances that the scriptures talk about. John Wenderlin is the guest. This is Afternoons with Bill Arnold on Faith Radio, and we're talking about his book. It's called Remember Me, an end of life is seen through the eyes of a hospice chaplain, and John is a hospice, hospice chaplain. John, would you tell us um, the difference that you experience um, when you walk into the room that you were just talking about, the difference between people who have saving faith in Jesus and those that don't as they face death? Well, I'll tell you the most wonderful thing for me. First of all, uh, I have to say that I I am a hospice chaplain because the Lord has called me to be. But I, I am as much or more blessed by all the people that I meet during my travels. Um, I have to tell you that I have experienced people who 
I literally leave this earth screaming that medications and special care doesn't do enough for him. But you know, the scripture says that he is, we like to use the fancy word being sanctified mm. or glorification. And sanctification is a process. And you know, when I meet those people who are, are, are who understand the end of their Christian life, I've met those people who I had one a month ago who said, you know, chaplain, I am perfectly ready to meet my Lord Jesus Christ. So the most blessed thing about my profession is that I'm able to see the end results of what Scripture tells us uh, life will be like. So um, I get a full gamut of uh, I get a full gamut of uh, of those spiritual people. You know what I'm saying? Some are who some aren't, and uh, for me, I just I just try to love them up. Uh, I can give so many stories. I I have a thousand twelve hundred stories in my computer that I just downloaded over. There. John, you mentioned something um, that was just very bold and very vivid in my mind as you talk about some people leaving this earth um, screaming. Why is that happening? Well, I, well, you know, the scripture tells us that there's a lostness in some. We all have an understanding. There's, you know, Romans tell, says that we're, at, we're without excuse, but some have lived such a, such a, such a life that they, they see nothing after life. You know, they see no, nothing but, you know, uh, ashes and dust. They see no, no place that their spirit will go. And the ones who uh, think that they might have a spirit going, they're convinced hell's where they're going. So, um, and many of them are not ready to die. They'll tell you, I'm not, I don't want to die. And I can remember having a patient when I first met him, he said, well, we can have a conversation, but I'm not ready to die, you know? we had to transfer him to our special care areas because he just literally came apart and there was no, no, no sense of medicines or any strength of medicine other than unconsciousness that would keep him from screaming on his way out. So it's, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And it's really, those are the people that I really just, uh, I don't know. My heart just, just cries out for them because, you know, we're reminded of the thief of the cross, right. you know, we're just reminded that there's always hope. And as you give them that hope and as, I mean, I just think of that person that you're just, you're talking about. I, I can't get them out of my, my head as they're screaming. They just don't want to receive the hope. You just can't comfort them in any possible way. Um, what is the explanation for that? Any idea? Well, most everything that I, I, I stand on and believe is based within the confines of the scriptures. Amen. And the, the scriptures says until the scales are removed from their eyes, they're not going to have faith. Now, the Bible says we're given a certain amount of faith. Uh, the Romans says that we're, we're, um, we're subject to being without excuse. And I, I told somebody one time, I said, you know, I love to use this analogy. If you can imagine anyone who used to do puzzles, your grandmother, your aunt, your uncle, or even when we were kids, I did puzzles. And the Lord has a man piece puzzle and it's all white. Every piece is white. As you can imagine how hard that would be mm. for us to put together. But he puts together those pieces one piece at a time and without any mess. So I, be I believe through what scripture says that the Lord puts me right where he wants me at any moment of my life. So I get the opportunity to at least, you know, try to tell them, try to make them understand it's going to be okay. I know that sounds a, like a very simplistic 
uh, answer, but the answer is it's just going to be okay. So uh, I have no real answer. I just know that some will, some will believe and some won't. Uh, Jesus said in the book of John, uh, I've come to save the many, the ones you've given me. And, you know, I just don't sort through those things. Uh, I just, uh, I try to be ever present. And I've been doing this for a lot of years. And I'll tell you, when I get up in the morning, I can't wait to get to my first stop. I can't wait to see that patient. I just can't, especially if they're new. Mm. John, thank you for your heart. This is a, a tremendous conversation. Um, he's a hospice chaplain. His name is John Wenderling. And he is our guest on Afternoons with Bill Arnold today. And in just a couple of minutes, as we talk about hospice and we talk about the end of life, I'm going to ask him two questions. What we need to be ready for as we enter hospice in the future and what we need to be ready for if we have a loved one who is either in it or about to enter hospice. We'll continue our conversation next. This is Afternoons with Bill Arnold on Faith Radio. You are not alone. Do you believe me when I say that? You are not alone. The enemy wants you to believe that you are not only alone, all alone, but to make you feel bad about it. That's loneliness. And it's a lie. Jesus tells us that the enemy tells us lies to rob us of our joy, kill our hope, and destroy our lives. And so if you're experiencing loneliness today, let me say this. You're not alone. The enemy is using the weapon of loneliness against a lot of people right now. But here's the good news. God is present. God is present right now, and he's closer to you than your very next breath. God loves you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You were created for relationship with him. And that sense of loneliness that you have right now, well, that's an indication that your heart knows it. Loneliness is the spiritual indicator that real love, real companionship, real relationship, real life are all possible. And guess what? Jesus literally came to make that connection with you. Do you want to know more? Text the word lonely to 877-933-2484. And I'll drop in on you to remind you that God is present and you're not alone. Text Lonely, L-O-N-E-L-Y, to 877-933-2484. Connecting faith to life. Faith Radio. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we're talking about death today. Maybe not something that you were expecting when you got in your car or you flipped on the podcast or at MyFaithRadio.com. This is Afternoons with Bill Arnold. My name is Ben, and we're having a a conversation with a hospice chaplain today. His name is John Wenderline. And we're so grateful. For the last several minutes, you've shared the tenderness of your heart and your passion for your calling to go into really hard situations. And what you call, John, is to love them up to continually be full of the Spirit and to continue to show up uh, for people and for families that are going through um, what we will all go through at some point. But nobody really knows what it's like. 
and and so this conversation today is fascinating. And I, I you know, before the break, I just I asked two questions, and I, I would love for you to ask, uh, answer those about if we're going into hospice, what is something that I need to know? What's that experience like? And then for family members or friends or loved ones or church members who will be supporting somebody going through hospice, what do we need to know? Well, um, Ben, I'd like to talk about the, the second question first, okay. the caregiver. The caregiver is the, uh, you know, that's the toughest job to have. Uh, you you can't be trained to do it. You don't go to school to do it because, you know, it's just all consuming. I remember my father passing here four years ago at Christmas, and I remember getting him home. He was on hospice, and I went home that afternoon to see how my mother was doing. And my mother was at the sink shoving, you know, a large meal down the garbage disposal, which my father loved to eat big meals, but by then he couldn't. And I remember walking up behind her and she was crying. And I said, Mom, why are you crying? And she said, he won't eat. I said, Mama, he's not hungry. She said, but but he won't eat. I said, Mama. And I walk in and I said, Dad, are you hungry? And he says, no, son, I just need to relax. I need to, you know, not, I can't eat. So the point I'm making is, is sel- seldom do uh, caregivers come to the end of someone, of the person's life that they love, that they don't feel some sort of guilt. But, you know, for the Christian you know, I tell people every day that we do not die by accident. The scripture says we have an appointed time. So, you know, I might be in a car and my car might get a little smashed up at the moment of time that I died. So I try to, as best I can, explain to the family members who are spiritual, uh, even who are spiritual, that the scripture says that we can't we can't pass a moment before a moment after. But, you know, the hardest job, the job that I respect the most other than our nurses and everybody who works with me is the caregiver because their heart, they don't sleep, they don't eat. They're on the schedule of that person who's passing. So, and you know, to prepare for, for something, prepare for hospice, you know, the scripture tells us, you know, Jesus spent a lot of time with the disciples after he rose from the dead. And what he did was he got close to the Sea of Galilee and he told them, I go to prepare a place. And they didn't want him to go. And he said, but I've got to go. I've got to go prepare this place. He said, but I leave you the spirit. I leave you the spirit that will dwell in you. And he, he said, but I'll be back. That's the promise we have. That if he, if he comes back before he comes and gets us, either way, it's a win-win. So I try to always keep my conversations within the confines of scripture because I believe if you speak it, the truth, the truth never comes back void. So, I mean, I think those are the two answers that I can give you uh, if I've been complete. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. John Wenderlein's our guest. He's a hospice chaplain. A couple of questions about, um, you know, for a really long time, I've I've been fascinated by what you do. I went through a situation where my grandfather passed away. Uh, he had a stroke and was in assisted living and then was on hospice care, and I would drive four hours every weekend to to re- relieve my family members that were there and and just be with him. And I found it to be, and I use this word, um, which just, it seems so weird to use this word, but it was one of the most romantic experiences I have ever been through in my life. It was so tender. It was so authentic. He was so vulnerable. And to just show up, and he he loved Jesus like crazy. And so... We have the great hope to know that he is with the Lord. Amen. Why do you do you would you ex, would you explain the the same process as as being a romantic thing and then um, 
you've also mentioned um, during our conversation today that you can't wait to get to work. You can't wait to show up to your first patient. You can't wait to do what you do. And for so many people listening going, whew, that seems really hard. I don't know if I could do that. Well, I have to tell you, when I when people meet me in the street and they happen to see my name tag that's, or, or the little insignia that's on my shirt, they'll say, and what is it you do? And I say, well, I'm a chaplain. And it, you know, it never fails. People say, oh, when I tell them I'm a hospice chaplain, they go, oh, mm. I don't know how to do that. It's never, hey, good job. Way to go. It's <laughs> always, you know, oh, no. You know, it's it's like you've walked into misery. But, you know, I'm in, in one of my stories, uh, quickly, I, I was called at, oh, at night. I was on call, and I went to a house, small house, in a nicer part of town. And I walked into the room. I knew the, a sweet lady was passing. But, you know, I know you remember Norman Rockwell, a great painter, a great uh, capturing of uh, realistic uh, America. But I walked into her room, a small little eight by 10 by room, and there must have been 15 people in there. No lie. And they were all looking at her in that bed as she was uh, coming to the end of her life. And, you know, I walked up. I grabbed the chair. I put the chair next to her bed. I grabbed her hand from under the cover. I put my hand on her brow and I spoke about the majesty of Christ and the love of Christ. And for me, and probably for you and your sweet grandfather passing away, there couldn't have been no better joy than to know that however many years we've lived on this earth, that when we drew our last breath or when the person who love, we love so draw our last breath, their last breath, it was a glorious time. So I, one of my stories, it's not even in any of the original book, I call it a Norman Rockwell moment. Mm. So there is a great glory in that. There is a great love affair in that sort of care. There's no greater love. You know, there's no greater love. I'm, I'm reminded of the book of Acts where they sold everything they had to take care of the other members. So mm. And hopefully my, my answer wasn't too long. Yeah, no, I could listen to you talk all day. It's just so fascinating. John Wenderlein is the guest here on Afternoons with Bill Arnold. He is a hospice chaplain. We're talking about end of life. This book, Remember Me, End of Life is Seen Through the Eyes of a Hospice Chaplain. And John, what are some of the, the qualifications you need? How do you, how, do you, how do you get to be a hospice chaplain if somebody who is listening right now goes, wow, I feel God calling me into this. And you mentioned earlier in this conversation too that there's not many people who do what you do. Um, I would imagine that there is, a, there is a need for your profession. Absolutely a need. I think, I believe in my heart that um, there always should be a one-on-one. We should be able to visit our patients more than I visit them. Um, you know, the technical qualifications are getting harder every year. You have to have at least a master's, uh, some CBE classes, CE classes, what they are is just... A, additional educational classes. You have to be a pastor in good standing with your faith. Um, so it's not necessarily easy, but, you know, uh, one of the uh, one of the downsides as, of being a chaplain is once in a while you will have a chaplain that comes on board who doesn't quite understand his role. And I know in my instance, I've had, had to have several conversations with chaplains who are a little more, a little too... I don't want to be disrespectful, but it's a little different. They're just not focused. So those are the qualifications. Mm. But I, I tell people every day, I say it without a doubt, that uh, I answer to a higher power. And it's not that I name the company that I work for. Not that I disrespect. I love the company I work for. But um, 
the joke is when I'm on call, it's at night for a week that uh, when I, I have my clothes hanging up ready for me with my shoes. And I used to tell the sweet people who would call me from the hospital, I would say, well, look, I'm going to start heading towards the hospital and I'll have to wait for my car to catch up to me <laughs> because I, I just can't imagine uh, when someone calls for a need that I just wish I could blink myself into their room. Uh, so, yes, the qualifications are, as I said, at least a master's, at least a certain amount of CE classes and, you know, good standing with your with your um, your with your faith, your denomination. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. None of that matters. You just have to have the heart for it. There has to be some sort of volunteer opportunities, aren't there? Well, you know, ironically speaking, uh, and I don't, I don't want to be too long, but uh, when I found out that the, the government military wouldn't, did not want a chaplain, I was pretty much heartbroken. You know, sometimes we think we run ahead of the Lord, but really he always has a plan. So I was uh, dropping off some paperwork for a company downtown in a multiple, you know, office complex. And as I walked out the door, this was 20 some years ago, I saw a sign on the door that said hospice. And I went, hospice, wonder what that's about. So I walked in and I told the sweet lady behind the counter, and I said, listen, I have a master's degree. I'm a pastor. I would just love to have, I would love to volunteer. And, you know, that conversation led to the lady who was in charge of that. And ironically, in the middle of that conversation with her, now I already had another profession. She said, hold on a second. And she brought the, 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 the person in charge of that division into the room. And she's, and as, after we got done talking, she says, John, now you've left me with a dilemma. And I said, what? I'm going to volunteer. She said, no, I've got five or 600 applications. She said, and I think I'm going to hire you. Hmm. I said, well, you don't have to hire me. Just let me, let me come help. And she called me four or five days later, says, John, come to work and we're going to pay you part-time. We'll just work around your schedule. And in six months time, I mean, then it turned into a full-time job. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you, you just you just don't know. And from that moment on, I, I've never been the same. Just never been the same. Wow. John, thank you for your service. Thank you for your mission and your calling and your passion. If there are people listening right now to Afternoons with Bill Arnold that want to get in touch with you, are you open to that? And and uh, how how do they get in touch with you if that's the case? Well, absolutely. I have a webpage. It's uh, rememberme.jw.com. Uh, I have uh, actually two books out now. Of course, the Remember Me, the End of Life Stories. And then I just uh, published last week, uh, Delayed Honor, uh, which deals with exclusively the Vietnam veterans and the situations they're going through at the end of their life, which is uh, a, quite a story. So, yes, go to my webpage. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, remember me, uh, jw.com. Uh, and, yes, if they have co- want conversation, please, I'm, I'm open. Trust mm-hmm. me, I'm very... John, thank you for your time. We are so grateful that you joined us on Afternoons with Bill Arnold. John Wonderland, uh, remember me, end of life as seen through the eyes of a hospice chaplain. Um, RememberMeJW.com. Thank you very much. God bless. Yeah, God bless you too. This is Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Uh, We'll talk to George Barna next. There's so many conversations about the next generation and their faith. And and there are some stark data points that we need to talk about. And and George is going to help us pass on our faith to the next generation, whether it's your kids, your grandkids, your godchildren, your nieces, nephews, just kids in the neighborhood. It is an important conversation you won't want to miss next on Faith Radio. kids and who your grandkids will be as adults is essentially determined by the age of 13. 
their core beliefs, their morals, their values, their desires, their lifestyles. This is Afternoons with Bill Arnold, and I'm Ben. Today's guest is George Barna. You've heard him on Faith Radio multiple times in Mornings with Carmen. He's written this new book. It's called Raising Spiritual Champions. And raising our kids is an exciting opportunity to influence a life, but it's also a daunting assignment. And if you have children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews or godchildren or just children in your sphere of influence, you know, you know what that's like. And parents, as parents and grandparents, we have this God-given responsibility and privilege to guide the development of the kids. A responsibility that we can't delegate to, to schools or even churches or media or community organizations. And so based on years of exclusive and extensive national research, uh, George Barna, and he's going to help us walk through all of this data and to get a better understanding of how to have a a better impact. He's given us a, a biblical approach to raising kids with the seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview. Now, if you're listening to Faith Radio and you've, you've listened to Faith Radio, I'm sure you've heard a lot about a biblical worldview. So, George, first of all, thank you for joining Afternoons with Bill Arnold. But would you just start at the basics for us and define what a biblical worldview is? Yeah, sure. I mean, everybody has one. There's this notion that this is only for people who are philosophers or theologians. Truth of the matter is we start developing a a worldview, whatever type we choose to have, before the age of two, somewhere between 15 to 18 months of age, usually. It's almost fully developed by the age of 13 in most cases. And it doesn't change much for the rest of our life. Once we develop it, we take that for granted and we just start working with it and, and living through it. And what it is essentially is our way of trying to make sense of the world, our way of understanding who we are, who we could be, perhaps who we should be, what kind of life we want to have, how we can have that life, what difference it makes, how we can have the biggest impact in life, all of these kinds of big questions and more. And so what we do is we put the answers to all those big questions together into what essentially is an intellectual, emotional, spiritual, moral filter that we use so that Every single decision that we make, every moment of every day of our lives, flows through that filter, and it helps us to make our choices from moment to moment. And the reason why that worldview, that filter, decision-making filter, is so critical is because if we didn't have it, we'd constantly be anxious and eager and jittery and, and confused because we wouldn't know what direction to move in. And when we made choices, then we'd be wondering, oh, my goodness, did I do the thing that's right for me? And so this is the decision-making filter that protects us from having to deal with constant cognitive dissonance, that kind of uneasiness that the choices that we're making may be wrong, are wrong, shouldn't be wrong, how could we do them better? This is the thing that helps us to understand who we are where we want to go and how we're going to get there. Well, George Barna is a professor at Arizona Christian University and director of research at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And what you were just describing there, the the biblical worldview, it sounds like the core of the problem with culture today. It really is. And, you know, maybe another way of talking about a worldview is a philosophy of life. 
you know, which when I say that, people often feel more comfortable. So, oh, yeah, I have a philosophy of life. I should be this. I shouldn't be that. I should do this. I shouldn't do that. That's my philosophy of life. Okay, well, that is your worldview. And when you look at our society today, as you're suggesting, Ben, people are making decisions all the time. And as you look at the public opinion polls nationally, what we're finding, of course, is that more and more people are saying, yeah, I don't like the direction the country's moving in. I don't like the way that Americans are living today. I don't feel comfortable in this country anymore. It's not the country that I want. It's not the country that I think we used to have. Well, why is it that way? Because of the cumulative worldview choices that Americans are making. We're making bad choices and we're suffering because of it. And so if we want to change the nature of our country, if we want to change the direction that our nation is moving in, the way to do it is to address worldview. It's really not about politics. It's not about businesses. It's about families, particularly parents, making sure that they're raising children who have the right worldview. So, George, why, why often do we think it is politics? Why often do we think it is business? Because the biggest impact on our worldview is the media. Mm. And so we're constantly being bombarded with messages from the media, and all of those messages are worldview messages. They may be wrapped in the clothing of entertainment or education or public interest or hobbies or, you know, whatever it may be. But every one of those things is trying to push us to believe certain elements. Why does that matter? Because we do what we believe. And so if anyone can get us to believe something, that's going to naturally impact our behaviors, our lifestyle, our choice of, of how to live. And, uh, you know, when we think about the information we're receiving, it's almost never characterized as worldview information, but it is because it's trying to tell us the difference between right and wrong. What is right? What is wrong? Appropriate, inappropriate, good, bad, evil, uh, you know, holy, all of these kind of diametrically opposed ideas, which is what worldview points us toward and worldview causes us to live in a manner that's in harmony with a particular worldview. And so I'm a big advocate of the biblical worldview, the actual way of living that God has described to us in the Bible. But I also understand that in American culture today, I'm at a humongous disadvantage in trying to advocate for the biblical worldview because the elements that have the ear and the heart, the mind of the public, tend to be the media and the messages that they're giving to us through movies, through television, through music, through video games, through social media apps, through books, through magazines, all these things and more. That's all media content that we're exposed to, uh, uh, depending on your age, somewhere between 6 to 12 hours a day. We're just overwhelmed with that thinking. And, and so that's really what's driving people away from the biblical worldview, because this kind of a program that we're doing today is very unusual in the media environment of America. 
Most people in America today will not hear a program like this one that mentions the name of God or Jesus, that talks about the Bible, that claims that there is absolute moral truth, and we know it because God is the embodiment of that truth. He defines that truth. Most programs are going to say, no, the truth is within you. There is no God. You're the God of your life. You're going to need to take control. You're going to need to make the decisions and not worry about what other people think because it's all about you and it's all up to you. That's what most people are hearing most of the time. George, this is Afternoons with, with Bill Arnold. We're speaking with George Barna. He's written this new book. It's called Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart and uh, Mind and Soul. And I have a four-year-old daughter, George, and so uh, this is on my heart constantly, absolutely constantly. And you have a list of statistics in your book on why it's critical that parents take ownership of their kids' spiritual development. And this book is absolutely so critically relevant. Well, I, you know, this is kind of a work of the heart as well as the mind of soul for me. Because, you know, I'm, I'm getting on in years, who knows how much longer I'm going to have. So I'm at that stage now where I'm thinking about how do I finish well? And when I sat back and looked at all the things that I've done and then realized, okay, God may give me enough time to finish another book. What's the most important book that I could write right now? and leave behind and know that that's an important legacy. And that's what this book represents, because if America's going to survive, I don't think there's any guarantee that it's going to. But if we're going to, it's going to depend on what we do with our children starting today. Now, to turn around a culture takes multiple generations. America didn't get in the mess that it's in overnight, and we're not going to get out of this mess overnight. But where would we start to rebuild America? Where would we begin if we wanted to rebuild the Christian church in America so that it becomes healthy? Because it's not, by and large, today. Well, it really starts with our children, and with our children, where it starts is with worldview. Now, if we want to do that, there are a number of things I talk about in Raising Spiritual Champions that I found from the research that will point us in the right direction for doing that. We did seven original research projects just for this book because I wanted to make sure that we had the most current, accurate, and reliable information possible on which to base this book. But you know what? It all goes back to God. Hmm. Everything revolves around him, not us. And how do we know what he thinks, what he wants, how he's directing us? He tells us in the Bible and as we go back in the Bible and look at that, he tells us that the way that children are raised doesn't depend on the culture, doesn't depend on the media, or at least it shouldn't. It should depend on what parents are doing with those children. Parents have the primary responsibility for raising their children. The Bible lays out how it is we can do that, even in a confused, distracting culture like ours. And so as we follow those biblical principles, we know that, yes, it's the parent's primary job. What is it they're supposed to be doing? Raising their children to be spiritual champions, which is another way of saying, raise your child to be a disciple of Jesus. And then the Bible tells us, okay, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Jesus himself gave us six particular definitions, six particular elements of his definition of a disciple. 
And so when we look at those, that again points us in a particular direction. It gives us uh, ideas of what we need to be teaching our children, what we need to be demonstrating for our children, how we need to be holding our children accountable. You know, how are we going to evaluate the progress or, you know, the, the regress that's happening in our child's life? And the Bible tells us what to do about all that. So really, it's not up to a local church to do this. We've got this unfortunate idea that it's the church's job to raise disciples. No, what we know, the scriptures teach this, and we can see it happening every day around us, is that disciples make disciples. And so if you want your child to be a disciple, you've got to do everything you can to ensure that you are a disciple, because you can only reproduce who you are. You're not going to reproduce something that you aren't. You can only give what you have. So make sure that you're a disciple and then turn your attention to making sure that your children get what Jesus said was important about becoming a true follower of his. Mm. George Barna is our guest on Afternoons with Bill Arnold today. He's written this new book. It's called Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul. Um, Coming up next... We've been talking a lot about a biblical worldview. We've been talking a lot about that it's not gonna a change is not gonna happen overnight, but there is steps that you can take today that will impact your children, your grandchildren, your godchildren, your nieces, your nephews, uh, children in your sphere of influence. And and how can we take those first steps uh, as we combat and what we feel like is coming at us from culture and media and the things that are just bombarding us all the time? More with George Barna next on Faith Radio. Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. If you have questions about Jesus or want to chat with someone about it, text FAITH to 41224. That's text FAITH to 41224. And God bless you. There's so much fear. There's so many conversations about the next generation. Hi, I'm Ben. This is Afternoons with Bill Arnold on Faith Radio. And Dr. George Barna is with us today. He's written this new book called Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul. And George has been on Faith Radio a bunch of times. He's a trusted resource for us. He's a professor at Arizona Christian University and the director of research at the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And George, we've been talking a lot about um, biblical worldview. And this, this stat just it is absolutely stunning to me. Out of today's parents of preteen kids, just one out of five, 22% is a born-again Christian. And of those 22%, only 8% of those born-again parents of preteens have a true biblical worldview. Now, sometimes, as as you're listening to Faith Radio, it it can seem like a a finger-wagging, like you got to have a biblical worldview. And we believe here at Faith Radio that that that's really important, but that's not going to really do anything to change the numbers, the stark contrast of the numbers we just heard. What are some steps that we can take today? Because as you said earlier in this conversation, it's going to take generations to turn things back around. But that seems overwhelming. What are some things, some some points and some tools that you can put in our toolbox that we can do today to begin this change that we're looking for in the next generation and the generations to come? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Ben. You know, and, and we have to keep in mind that, number one, we're not responsible for turning around the culture. We're responsible for turning around our family. That's about it. You know, I mean, if we can then move beyond that, great. What a blessing. But we've got to start with our family and not worry about the culture at large as much. Now, if if we start doing that, if you do it with your four-year-old and I do it with my three grandchildren and, you know, all the people that I know start doing this, before you know it, we're going to build momentum. And then we're going to start to see things move more quickly and more positively. And that's what we're shooting for here. But it starts in our family. So what do we do to begin that? Well, in the book, Raising Spiritual Champions, I talk about four different things that I suggest parents can do based on the research we have of what the people who came before us, the parents who currently are raising spiritual champions and recently raised spiritual champions, what did they do? What we discovered is, first of all, you've got to have a plan. You can't raise a spiritual champion randomly. It doesn't happen spontaneously. You got to think it through. You've got to have some kind of strategy in your mind and heart and then follow that strategic plan for what you're going to do with your children at different ages in different situations in order to help them to become spiritual champions. And part of that plan means that you make a deep and intense commitment that the number one priority in my life is that I'm going to raise my children to be disciples of Jesus. If you don't have that firmly implanted in your mind and heart, it's not going to happen. It's just another thing on the to-do list. So that's got to be your top priority. So then the second thing you've got to work on is, well, what substance do I need to be sharing with my children? What kind of beliefs do I need to be teaching them and modeling for them and talking with them about and so forth? And and a lot of parents, after I've talked about this book that, that recently came out, they've come up to me and they said, oh, my gosh, I don't have a biblical worldview. I didn't realize that before, but now I realize that. But what do I do? Am I doomed? Is my child doomed? It's like, no. The reality of parenting, as you know, Ben, is you only have to be about 10 seconds ahead of your kids. So, you know, if if, if you understand where you're going and you're consistently working at it, and consistently providing those cues to your children. You can do this. You can do this. But where do you start? And so in the book, I've got a section where I talk about something I discovered in the research that I've labeled the seven cornerstones of a biblical worldview. These are seven very basic beliefs where I discovered, you know what, if if you own these beliefs, you don't just know them, you don't just have the ability to parrot them, but they're part of who you are. You make them the essence of your being. If you own those seven, then you've got an 83% probability of going on developing a full biblical worldview. These seven beliefs don't constitute a full biblical worldview, but you can develop a complete one if you've got these as your foundation. However, if you reject even one of these seven, the data also shows that then you've only got a 2% probability of developing a complete biblical worldview. So start with the seven cornerstones. But then thirdly, not only do you need to get these right beliefs into the mind and the heart and the lifestyle of your child, but it's, it's about transferring or translating 
those beliefs into behavior. Really, ultimately, you're a disciple because of your lifestyle. You do what you believe. So, yes, you have the right beliefs, but what you say you believe doesn't matter until you show, you prove that you believe it, and that's where behavior comes in. And so helping your children to understand how do you convert the fact that you believe that there is a God that's alive, that he created you, that he loves you, that he's holy, that he has plans for you, that he's created the world around these things. So what? I mean, that's really the question we as parents, grandparents, teachers, coaches have to, have to be asking all the time is, so what? It's not just enough to get a child to memorize a verse. We've got to help them translate that verse into a lifestyle. And then the fourth thing that's part of this process of effectively raising spiritual champions is to measure what's going on in your child's life. Can we assess their progress? And you don't have to do it through surveys. You do it through the relationship you have with them. You do it through the time that you're spending with them and observing what they're saying, what they're doing, what they're thinking, how they're reacting to different situations, what situations they're willing to confront, how they deal with conflict. All of this gives you clues about are we making progress toward a biblical worldview in his or her life. And, and when you are, you want to reinforce that progress. You want to celebrate that progress, encourage them in that progress. When there are issues that arise, there are problems that you see, then you want to have a conversation with them about that and help put them back on the right track. So, you know, make it a priority, have a plan, know what beliefs you're going to be sharing with your children and expecting them to comply with in their lifestyle, uh, help them translate those beliefs into that lifestyle, and then measure the lifestyle, reinforce the good, fix the bad, and, and it's going to work out great. Well, if you're a parent or a grandparent or like Dr. George Barna was saying, a teacher or uh, a small group leader, Sunday school teacher, a coach, uh, this book is for you, Raising Spiritual Champions, Nurturing Your Child's Heart, Mind, and Soul. And George, what I think of all the time when you kept mentioning the word progress in the last 30 seconds or so, and I look at the three P's of progress is patience, or excuse me, presence, patience, and perseverance. Don't give up. Make sure that you're there. Make sure that you're present. Make sure that you're acting out what you're saying, like you said. And then that tenderness, too, that nurturing word that you use, nurturing your child's heart, mind, and soul. We're so grateful for the time this afternoon raising spiritual champions. It's out now. Dr. George Barna, you're always such a, a dear friend of Faith Radio, and we're grateful that you've given us the time this afternoon. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you, Ben. I'm always grateful to be on with you. Thanks. Mm, absolutely. Faith Radio is celebrating 75 years of what God is doing in and through all of us here all over the country to tell more people about Jesus in more places. Thank you, thank you, thank you. To celebrate, we want to send you a present. Yeah, that's right. For our birthday, you get the gifts. Register now at MyFaithRadio.com. That's MyFaithRadio.com. My name is Ben, and you're listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold on Faith Radio. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.